We are in Romans chapter 7, continuing on in our series, The Gospel of God. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Look at the text again. Look at that last verse. Let me read it again. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is our third week in this text, and we're going to zero in now on that verse as we finish up this portion of the text. But look at the words, the beginning words. Of verse 6, but now, but now. They're not new in these texts we've been looking at in Romans. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 21, you see the very same words where it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And what but now means is that once it was this way, and now it's not anymore. It's a different way. And what it means in 321, we've come back to that again and again. It's the heart, really, of what Paul was trying to tell us in the book of Romans. Now a righteousness has been revealed. A righteousness from God has come a righteousness that's accomplished completely outside of us, not in us, but outside of us, that is applied to us, is given to us, is credited to us. And so when I have made the statement multitudes of times, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect, and that hears, they hear, makes you hear something that is incredibly bad news because you know you can't in the ways you've attempted so far to be perfect, you find there's another way to find perfection, another way to attain perfection. It's not that it's a wrong statement. It's true. God demands perfection. So he provided a way after we had squandered our first opportunity at perfection. He provides another way for that to happen. For the people, he came Remember Ephesians chapter 2, all those things that he came to do? 
he found another. He didn't find, he provided another way that we might be righteous. We who are unrighteous, but now we who had no hope, but now we who were dead in our trespasses and sins and, and uh, had no hope, now have hope. That's what but now means. It means a dramatic change, a dramatic shift is being told. And that is the most glorious shift in all of Scripture. In fact, you can't understand the rest of the Bible if that is not at the core of it. If that is not at the core of all of the other understanding you have of Scripture, you don't understand it because that's what it's all about. That's what the coming of Christ is about, to provide a righteousness outside of us. And by faith, we can, we can possess it and know it to be ours and be seen as perfect in God's eyes because of it. That was the first one in Romans. And then we went on to chapter 6. And you see it again. Look at the verses in chapter 6, verse 22. But now... But now, the shift happened in chapter 6. You remember, you know that, I hope, if you've been here, that a shift from chapter 5 to chapter 6 was, in, up through chapter 5, it was talking about justification in the Christian life. How can we be justified before a holy God? How can we have our sins forgiven? How can we be reconciled to a holy God? And that's all about justification. That justification rests in the work of another, in Christ in all that he accomplished, all we just talked about. But then in chapter 6, he shifts from justification to sanctification, which is also part of what God does. Salvation is three things, justification, sanctification, glorification. Now he's talking about the second part of what God does in a people that he's come after, that he begins to sanctify them. He begins to actually change them. What he does by placing the Holy Spirit within them uh, Romans tells us if we have not the Spirit of Christ, we don't belong to Christ. So we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to actually change us. He begins to actually make us righteous in an imperfect sense of that word righteous. We aren't fully righteous, but God does begin to produce righteousness in us. It isn't finished until glorification where we're made perfectly righteous but before that, he's, he's changing us. He's bringing us from one degree of glory to another, if you will. We'll talk about that this morning again. That's sanctification. And here it's talking about that. It says, but now, but now. In other words, he's answering the question. Remember, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? We, we ended at the end of chapter 5, and we have this glorious hope of a righteousness outside of us. By faith, not by works. And the next question, the logical question is, if you've actually presented that correctly, someone will say, well, then can we just sin that grace may abound because it's about grace. And Paul says, God forbid. And the reason he says God forbid is because of this but now. But now something else happens when we put our faith in Christ. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's into eternal life. What once was impossible begins to be made possible by the Spirit of God within us. 
Now, this is the point of those but nows. There's three of them here, but nows. One of the things that I hope when you hear that but now is it's glorious to you. But now, you hear hear some really good news is coming and has come in those statements. Um, We were once this, but now we're not anymore. Um, The point is, you, you can't be partly Christian. I hope we understand that as a people. We we don't become partly Christian. Something totally different happens. In a moment of time, although we may not always know when exactly that moment is, but we pass from death to life. There's a but now that makes an abrupt change for us. In a moment it happens. In a moment we are justified by faith. And in a moment, in that same moment, sanctification by faith begins. God begins to change. But it's in a moment, the but now, the but now. You don't grow into being a Christian. You come to faith in Christ, and and then you grow in your faith as a Christian. But, But you don't ease into being a Christian. There is a but now that happens when God opens our eyes and we put our hope in the work of Christ. And, and what happens in that moment is that we're justified. We, we have the righteousness of God applied to our lives, and so we are seen as perfect. But, but also we are delivered, and that's what chapter 6 and 7, we, we have a deliverance that takes place in our lives as Christians. That's why it's, it's foolish to ask the question, shall we go on sinning, or that we should go on sinning, that grace may abound. We can't. That's really the answer of 6 and 7. You can't because a but now has happened. And, and part of that but now in 6 was you have been set free from sin. You've been set free from sin. And then he goes on now today to say, but now you are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We've already said we are delivered. We're delivered from the penalty of the law. The law no longer hangs over us as a penalty that we have failed and not lived up to the law because Christ fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the law for all who are in Christ. He fulfilled it for you. He fulfilled the penalty of the law for you. And so there's no penalty to be paid if if you are in Christ, if you've put your hope in him. There's no penalty left. And in fact, for God to do that would, would be unjust. That's the gloriousness about the justice of God. On one end, the justice of God should scare us to death. But once you come to see and understand the but now of what God has done, you understand that that very justice that held us accountable and guilty now is the justice that says to us, because of Christ, we are not guilty. And it will not. It will not be held against you. The the penalty will not be extracted a second time. It has already been extracted from the death of Christ and in the death of Christ. And that's a glorious hope. We're free. We're free from the penalty. We've been delivered. We're delivered not only from the penalty of the law, but then from the power of the law. In the first sense, we're, we're delivered from the ability of the law to thwart our justification, but, but also we are 
delivered from the power of the law to thwart our sanctification, our growth in godliness, our our ability to fight against sin in our lives. We are freed from the aggravating effect of the law in regards to our sinful nature. That's what we talked about last week. I'm not going to go back over that, but it isn't that the law is bad, but it's that the law combined with our sinful nature, our, our nature that says, I want to be God, causes us to do things that are not good. We want to be God, and if there's something that comes to us and wants to be God above us, we react to that. Our sinful nature reacts to that. And what the gospel does is frees us from that sinful nature that wants to be God because now we have bowed to the true God and a change happens. The law no longer holds us back. It no longer is joined to what aggravates our progress. That's the deliverance that comes. We are joined in the text, as we talked about. We are joined or married to Christ. We, we have died to the law that we might be married to another. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us when we are married to Christ. That's what it means. If, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. So when we, when we have that transaction, God puts his Spirit, he plants it within us. In fact, when Jesus was getting ready to go away, remember the disciples were troubled by that? They didn't want him to go. He had gone once and that wasn't good and now he'd come back and he was talking about going again and it deeply troubled the disciples. And Jesus said, if I don't go away, the helper can't come. In other words, what Jesus was saying, it is better for me to go away so that the helper can come. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to come and to dwell within uh, believers to help them. So the question now is where we want to go. The question is, what does that lead to in practice? How does that flesh itself out? What does it mean when the text says that we might live in the new way of the Spirit? Not in the letter, the external letter, but in the new way of the Spirit. What does, what does that look like in in ways that are practical to us as we live out our lives. This is what some things that I think are helpful. Um, First of all, we don't live, uh, we live in a difference between, it's a difference between an external and an internal relationship to the law or to morality. Maybe a better way to say that is morality. It's, It's a difference between living an external relationship to morality and an internal relationship to morality. You remember the question, shall we go on sinning? Shall we go on in immorality that sin may abound? And Paul says, God forbid, that's, that's not, you're not getting it. You're not understanding it. Um, what I want to offer you is a new way to relate in the sense of, of morality or in godliness. And it's from an internal sex. The old way, the old way was in ink. In other words, the stones were in ink. It was written on tablets, external tablets. And the new way that comes for the believer is now it's engraved on the fleshly tablets of our heart. 
That's the language that the New Testament uses in the deepest recesses of our being, written by the Spirit of God, not by ink, but by the Spirit of God on our hearts. For the children, they're not here this morning, but one of the things we've used for several years now as an illustration of new life is, is we've taken a rock and I've taken a heart that is kind of squishy. And what the promise of the New Testament, what the promise of the gospel is them, is he'll take our hard hearts and give us hearts um, of, uh, of flesh that are, that are soft. He changes, gives us a new heart. He changes our hearts. He changes us in an inner being. He changes us. Um, Hebrews chapter 8, which is really a, a quote out of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 is a, is a, a prophecy of the new covenant of what's coming, how, what the, the change is going to happen from the external to the internal. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 8 is it quotes Jeremiah 31. Or 20, yeah, 31. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I'll write them on their hearts, on the inside. Philippians chapter 2 is a picture of how that works in the Christian life where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If, if, if that's all that verse had and it ended there with a period and then went on to some other subject, that would be horrible. That would be terrible. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling with what's behind it is interpreted as sanctification, um, growing in grace. But this is the help. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Old Testament, some of the Pharisees were trying to work out their salvation. Um, They were trying to work for their salvation, but they had no concept of the idea of God working within them to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That's the promise of the gospel. And it's the difference between an external relationship and an internal relationship to morality. The second thing is um, what happens when, in, in a practical way in all that has been taught is we begin to see the purpose of the law. I hope by now you're beginning to see the purpose of the law. What what happened to the Pharisees is they didn't. They did not see that the purpose of the law was Christ. He was the end of the law because it was to point us to Christ. In Galatians, it says that the law, and in the, in the authorized version says, a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The goal of the law was not for us to attain righteousness by the law but rather to show us that we could not attain righteousness by an external code. To show us that we could not keep that law and therefore we would have to look elsewhere for another who kept that law perfectly, Christ. That's why it's proper to say in order to get to heaven, it it demands perfection. The first way to find it by an external code Everybody failed at, except one, the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ, 
perfectly fulfilled the law for us. It's not, it's not uncommon, I think, for um, people to, to see the trees but not the forest. That's really kind of what the Pharisees were doing. They, they saw the trees but they had no idea of the forest. They had no idea of the big picture. And, and the problem for people who struggle in the Christian life is that they, they may have a pretty good understanding of the trees or think they do, but they don't see the forest. They don't see how it all fits together and what it's all pointing to. And what had happened to the Pharisees, they did not understand that law that they knew very well. Don't shortchange the Pharisees. Don't shortchange Orthodox Jewish people. They'll put you to shame in what they know about the Old Testament scriptures. They memorize huge portions of it. Problem is, they didn't see the big picture. They didn't see the forest. They just had the trees. And the, the forest was Christ. The law always was to push us to Christ. He was the end of the law. That's why the scripture says that in places. He's the end of the law. Let me interject something here in parenting for a minute. Um, it, it has application to this text. Um, but I, I think this is one of the most important things we can do for our children. Um, certainly this particular case that we make them understand that all of this book, all of this book, all of the law, all of that is about Christ. This book is about the gospel. This book is about what he did and what we talked about in the but now of chapter 3 and verse 21, a righteousness from God. And it's so important they see that. But even in, a, in, a, in another scheme, that it, what, what I think is incredibly important for children is that they see that they're, they're part of a bigger thing God is doing. They're, it's, it's not just a, a little slice of it here at Richland that, that they're a part of, but they're part of a grander scheme, a grander thing that in Ephesians it said that God set in motion that whole idea of redeeming a people and the way he redeems them is by providing a righteousness outside of them in the gospel. It's incredibly important that they see that. Uh, doesn't, doesn't in many ways matter how much they, they know about the trees if they don't see the forest. They don't see the big picture of what God is doing and that they're a part of something huge and wonderful and that God is doing in all of history. Third thing, third thing, it, it, uh, it, it, the law moves us to Christ. The purpose of the law is Christ. Thirdly, difference of observing the mere letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. That's, that's really what it means to live in newness of spirit. We begin to understand the spirit behind the letter of the law. And it changes everything for us. It's, it's why Jesus said things like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. It's why he wrote this or spoke this that was written. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable 
to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Those are strong words. You think about it in the last couple of weeks in your life. Think about it. Who have you been angry with? It's akin to murder in Jesus' eyes. The amazing thing about this, if you were with us as we walked through Romans, particularly in chapter 3, one of the things we said about Martin Luther, who Martin Luther really was one of the sparks of the Reformation, that one of the people means God used to spark the Reformation in his writings. But it was amazing. Before Luther came to see what I just said to you, the but now of chapter 3, but now a righteousness from God has been manifested, that text, he, he didn't understand that text. He saw that, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And what he saw was Christ. He saw Christ. He just didn't understand what Christ was going to accomplish and what he did accomplish. And what I mean by that, he saw Christ. He, said, he, he knew the law. He knew the law that says thou shalt not murder. But then all of a sudden, the righteousness of a man of Christ, he saw the righteousness as Christ has been manifest. And, and Christ comes along and says, I mean, he's struggling already to try to do everything he can to keep the law. And then along comes one and says, if you're even angry at your brother, Luther was bombastic in many ways. And, and Jesus comes along and and. All of a sudden, Luther makes a statement, I love God, sometimes I hate him. Why? Why? Because he saw, before he began to understand what that meant, when it said a righteous had been manifested, he saw Christ coming, just making it worse. He just upped the ante of what he had to do. He just upped the ante of the external things that Luther had to accomplish in order to be reconciled to God. And he thinks, ha, until until he realized in that text that's not what it's saying it's not saying that it's saying that that Christ yes it, it did have relation to Christ but not new demands just to make the anti higher but one who was coming to pay the price of those demands and provide a righteousness to live perfectly to die and take the guilt upon him after living perfectly so that not only could he take the guilt of our sin, but he could give us a righteousness. That was the righteousness. And, and it, the doors of heaven, of paradise, opened for Luther when he saw that. It was a dramatic, it was a, it was a but now. He got it. He got it. And that's why we, we live out from an external standard. Because God put the Spirit of God within us, and, and we no longer live by that external, but an internal standard. But the beauty of that, the beauty of all that, is that we do it in the context of knowing, knowing it doesn't condemn us. But we begin to search our hearts. We begin to look at our hearts in new ways, and we, we realize that just keeping the external law isn't, isn't what we ought to do, but we begin to keep an internal law. We begin to go to the spirit of the law in our hearts. 
we hear things like, thou shalt not covet. And we realize it's about desire. Sin, sin is more than just external performance. It's an internal attitude of the heart. And, and as we become Christians, we begin to understand that. We begin to live by the Spirit of God that lives in us and won't let us settle for the mere letter but begins to go to the heart of it in our lives and uh, begins to get us to ask the question. Remember that question we've talked about a lot, Paul Tripp? What's going on in my heart? You ask that question? That's what it means to live in newness of the Spirit. You, you start to ask, what's going on in my heart? The temperature in the situation rises a bit. You begin to get agitated. You begin to get troubled. You begin to get frustrated, whatever it might be, and you ask the question, what's going on in my heart? I mean, what's, what, what's going on? Where, what, what sin is trying to take hold here in my life? That's different than the mere letter of an external letter. But the beauty of that is we do that in the context that, that that's not going to condemn us. You know, the... the the person who is by the mere letter, they don't dare ask that question. They're having enough trouble keeping their head above water in their performance that they're not going to ask about the heart. They're not going to ask about things that will condemn them. But when you begin to understand the gospel, when you begin to live out the Christian life by the newness of the Spirit and the confidence that you are already righteous in Christ because of Christ's righteousness, you're willing to battle sin in ways and in depths that you never are unless you're settled there, unless you know that. That's the way of the Spirit. That's the way we live. We, we have a new motive for living for God as well. That's the next point. A new motive for living for God. If you're living by the mere external standard of the law, your motive at the heart of it is one of three things. It's self-preservation, it's self-interest, or it is self-satisfaction. And all three of them lead to the same home, self the person who is concerned about self-preservation and self-interest is the kind of person who has a crippling fear of God. A crippling fear. A fear of, of God in the ways that they're doing everything they can to assuage that fear. They don't, they, they, they're living, uh, trying to keep their head above water and an external standard just so that they can keep God at bay. But at the heart of that, it is it is self-interest and self-preservation. I don't want him to condemn me. I don't want him to condemn me. Or maybe it's a person who says, I don't, that's hogwash. That's just a crutch for people who need a crutch. Christianity, I don't believe in God. But they're the kind of people who live for self-satisfaction. They may live morally. They may live really good moral lives, but it's for self-satisfaction. It's so that they can glory in it. They can feel good about it. Either way, it, it's about self. And the difference is when we begin to have the Spirit of God indwell us and begin to live in a new way, not by the letter, but by the Spirit within us. We have a new motive, a new motivation that drives us. And that new motivation is not what's in it for me. Not what's in it for me, ultimately. The Christian lives for God's pleasure, for God's glory. That's why we talk about the glory of God a lot. Whether I eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God, the scripture says. Listen to what it says in 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. The love of God controls us or constrains us because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, died and was raised. The difference is we begin to live for the sake of another. We are not number one on the scale anymore. We live for the glory of God. That's what living in newness of spirit produces. We sing songs like we sang today. Song, be thou my vision. And, and we say, still my, be my vision, even when difficulty comes, even when hard things come. Lord, my desire is that you would be glorified, that you would be honored in this, whether by life or by death. That's what Paul said. Might Christ be glorified. It changes everything. Uh, It is about God's glory and not our own in newness of spirit. And then finally, we we experience the power of the gospel to fight sin by the indwelling spirit. that's, That's the rubber hitting the road. When we live in newness of the spirit, we have a different way to battle against indwelling sin in our lives. Christians aren't fully free of sin. We all know that. We know that by experience. But we have a new power, a new power to come against it. In fact, I think R.C. Sproul is correct when he says, in any given moment, the Christian has the power and the ability to resist and fight sin. But then he goes on to say, but we don't. And the reason we don't is it comes at us so fast and so furiously. We don't. We don't live perfectly. We have the ability in any given moment to appropriate the grace to fight it. But the truth is we don't always. But we do better. We do better as Christians. Don't don't say you're the same. There's been a but now. But now a change has taken place and a change will take place in how we live out our lives. Not perfectly but it will change. And how it changes and how we fight it is the gospel. The gospel. You see, all of that other, when you live by the letter of the law, trying to keep your head above water, if you will, in a sense, it just leads to despair and hopelessness. That's exactly what Luther experienced. I mean, he thought he was doing it, knew he wasn't doing very well. He had, had a degree of despair and hopelessness when he was trying to live by the external letter of the law, then Christ comes along and ups the ante, as I said, makes it worse, not just, not just don't do it, but don't even think about doing it, don't even want to do it, don't even be angry at your brother. And, and all of a sudden, he, his despair and hopelessness got greater, got greater, not less, which is what the law does when you live by the external law. And there's a purpose in that because it then drives you to another it drives you to live in deadness to that law that you might be married to another and be married to Christ. And, and as we are married to Christ and his spirit dwells in us, we have a new power to battle sin. It's always dangerous to, to, to share an illustration that you thought of this morning as you were in the sanctuary, but this is it. I, I hope it will make sense to you. 
there's a degree in my life that, that I battle sin because of the position that I have. I battle it because of the position I have. I, I have to speak to you every week. And so there's a degree of fighting sin that comes from just the fact that every Sunday I've got to stand in the pulpit and I've got to talk to you. And that's helpful. I mean, I think we do want to battle sin for the sake of others and all. There's, there's some truth to that. And it, it, there's some power in that. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And it doesn't compare. It does not compare. That motivation does not compare to the motivation that comes when you are in the Scriptures and you see the Gospel anew and afresh and you see what Christ has done and what He's accomplished. And, it, and you realize that your sin is not going to be held against you. And you're free from that. And, and that life-giving hope That life-giving hope gives you a hope to fight sin in ways that the first way never will. Never will. The gospel does that. That's why Christians need the gospel every day. And to the degree which you are not experiencing gospel hope on an almost daily basis, moment-by-moment basis maybe, but daily basis, you will battle sin because Satan will bring in despair and despair does not breed well in the battle against sin. And that's why it is so important that the gospel is the center of everything we do in this church. Everything we sing, everything we preach, everything we do ministry out of, the gospel needs to be the motivation, the newness of the spirit that has come that both justifies and sanctifies us in grace. Progress happens by the Spirit of God and only by the Spirit of God. I want to close in the same place that I closed last week. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, just listen carefully. This, this text, you, you might want to go home later today and just, just, uh, just glory in it. It, it, is, it is special. Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me get the right text. Chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's the text I closed with last week where it talked about a veil that Moses had over his face. Remember that veil? And it says that that veil remains to this day to much of the Jewish nation. And what that veil is, is a veil over them that help, causes them not to be able to see Christ. Not be able to see the forest for the trees. They, they see the trees I said they put you to shame, maybe Orthodox Judaism sometimes in what they know of Old Testament texts, but they don't see what it all points to. They don't see Christ. There's a veil over their eyes to see the glory of Christ. But then the scripture says, but we, look at verse 18, and we all with unveiled faces. What's it mean to have an unveiled face? It means that you do see the glory of Christ. You see it. You see the glory of the gospel of Christ. And this is what it accomplishes. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory 
to another. How, how do we live out this Christian life? By the newness of the Spirit. As that Spirit helps us to see the glory of Christ, we just keep looking more at the glory of Christ. We keep going back again and again to, to see the glory of Christ and all that he's accomplished in the, in the text, in the, in the scriptures. Again and again, I, I think a way that even this morning would be an example of that, that that isn't new to me in the last year or so, but a few years ago, I, I remember um, using the presentation I used this morning by Kim Keller on the prodigal son. And you know the story of the prodigal son. It talks about a younger brother, uh, talks about an older brother. Maybe you've centered on the younger brother, maybe you've centered on the older brother, but what Keller brought to bear on my life, which was soul-strengthening to me, is that there's also a true elder brother. You know, that elder brother didn't do what he should have done, but there's a true elder brother, Jesus Christ. A true elder brother who, who went after us while we were yet sinners. He came for us. That true elder brother accomplished something. You see, that's soul-strengthening to me. That strengthens me that to, to go on in the battle, in the fight, in the process of letting God change me from one degree of glory. You just look at that glory of Christ that again and again appears in Scripture. And God uses it in our lives. That's the power of living by the Spirit. And I pray God will help us. As I said this morning, I selected a song that we're going to sing in closing. I think even as we sing it, you'll see some of the themes that we've talked about this morning. Let's stand and sing together. Faithfulness, my 
my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross lay on your shoulders in my place. Suffered, bled, and died. You rose the grave and death a conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. You rose the grave and death a conquered. You broke my bonds. you are our rock and our redeemer and you have caused us to live in newness of spirit we're grateful for that and it has caused us to to be able to sing those words may all of our life bring glory to your name father we pray to that end And we pray it in the confidence of what you say to us in your word in the book of Jude. Now to you who are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time both now and forever. Amen.